here with the Seeking Pearls podcast. It is wonderful to be here with you this morning. This morning, we are diving into our fourth episode on the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. And today we are looking at the second half of chapter two of Colossians. We left off last week learning that we need to stay rooted and grow strong in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we are not taken away by the deceptive philosophies and the fine-sounding arguments of our culture around us. We also learned last time that Jesus is the mystery of God that was hidden for ages and generations but now has been revealed and that in him are all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that Jesus is the treasure of mankind and that as we get to know Jesus we will have an infinite experience of discovering wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ and so our joy for the ages for all of eternity will be discovering the treasures that are within the Lord Jesus Christ as we get to know him both here now on earth and forever throughout all of eternity so as we begin today I am going to continue the pattern I've set that we are going to just read the text for today so we're going to read starting at Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 where our text for today starts through the end of chapter 2 and we're going to read it like a letter because it is in fact a letter and then we will come back to the beginning of today's text and we will start going through it verse by verse at that point. So here is Colossians chapter 2 starting at verse 9 reading in Jesus name. For in Christ All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so as I've been doing, that was out of the NIV, the New International Version of the Scriptures. And as we go through and talk about this verse by verse, I will be using the New Living Translation quite a bit. There are several verses in this text that are difficult to understand and to comprehend. And the New Living Translation is considered to be a thought-by-thought translation as opposed to a word-by-word translation. So it translates thoughts instead of exact words. And sometimes that helps us understand a little bit more what the text is saying in simpler, in a simpler translation. It's still a translation, just a little bit simpler to understand sometimes. So I'll be using that as we go through this. So I started in verse 9, but we left off last week at verse 8, which told us to see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So when we left off last week, we were talking about how we need to measure everything against the Bible. So all ideas and philosophies that we take in from the world around us, we measure them against scripture and we always go with scripture. What scripture says is true and everything else is measured against it. Everything true in this world is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of God, and so all truth lies in him. So let us not be taken captive by things that are empty and false from the world. And I talked last week about how I pray 2 Corinthians 10.5 over our family, that we, uh, that we would take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. And then also when I pray daily, the armor of God over our family from Ephesians chapter 6 and I and I pray over us the helmet of salvation I always just claim out loud that the, the truth would stay in and the lies would stay out truth in lies out so Paul was talking about how all truth is in Christ and then he leads into verse 9 and he says for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form Now, the deity in the NIV is capitalized. That is referring to God. And in the New Living Translation, it simply is translated, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So we also read about this in chapter 1 when Paul was going through what might have been a hymn or a poem about Jesus that was familiar to the early church. He was listing many of the truths about who Jesus is. And he said in what we have as chapter 1, verse 19, he says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. So this is the second time in a very short amount of verses that Paul has reminded us that all of the fullness of God dwelled in the Lord Jesus Christ in his body. And then in verse 10, he says, And in Christ 
you have been brought to fullness. So all of the fullness of God lives in Christ, and in Christ you are made complete or full. I was a child of the 90s and I grew up loving the movie in high school the movie Jerry Maguire came out with Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger and like all 16 year old girls in 1996 I loved that movie was totally in love with Tom Cruise and of course we remember that shortly after the movie was released Sting released that song where there was all these like romantic sentences from Jerry Maguire that were woven into that song (laughs) I'm going to have to go listen to the song now after this, but uh, it was very romantic. And one of the most romantic phrases from Jerry Maguire was when Jerry Maguire realizes that he cannot live without Renee Zellweger and he goes into her house and she's got her like single moms group meeting or divorced moms group meeting. And all these women are sitting around the couches in the living room and Tom Cruise goes on this spiel about how he cannot live without her. And he gets to the the iconic phrase, you complete me. And it was like melting hearts and all the women around the group in the living room are like, oh, oh, oh. And then that's when she says, shut up. You had me at hello. You had me at hello. But it's this whole idea that you complete me and it's so romantic and it's it made the Sting song what the Sting song was. And it's so false. It's such a false idea that anybody can complete another person. No human can complete another person. My husband does not complete me. I do not complete my husband. My children do not complete me. My friends do not complete me. The perfect job doesn't complete me. Having all my savings accounts or investments grow the way I want them to grow does not complete me. Having the right address does not complete me. Having the perfect job does not complete me. Uh, Getting my hair to do exactly the right thing on exactly the right day does not complete me. Reaching my goal weight does not complete me. Uh, Achieving a level of fitness that I've wanted to achieve does not complete me. Nothing completes me except Jesus. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Go ahead and say that out loud. In Christ, I have been brought to fullness. If we want to use the Jerry Maguire lingo, let's say this. Jesus completes me. Jesus completes me. No one else and nothing else can ever complete me. All of the fullness of God lives in Jesus. And in Jesus, I am brought to fullness. At the end of verse 10, Paul just reminds us, He, Jesus, is the head over every power and authority. We have been brought to fullness in Christ because he is the head of every power and authority. Nothing in all of creation is more authoritative than the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 11, he says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Okay, let's pause there and let's think about circumcision. When God made his promise to Abraham, he gave Abraham the sign of circumcision. This is way back in Genesis. He gave Abraham the sign of circumcision that 
this would be a sign of the covenant that God has made with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. Circumcision from the very beginning was a sign, not a savior. It was a reminder, not a redeemer. Circumcision does not save Abraham. Circumcision does not save the descendants of Abraham. Circumcision was a sign that God was saving his people and that God was building a nation through his people and that God would one day send a savior through the line of his people. So circumcision was a sign from the very beginning. In the early church, it was very confusing for the Jewish believers who had become Christians to think about what do we do with circumcision for the Gentile believers. Gentiles are non-Jews. So I am a Gentile. There's a really good chance you are a Gentile. Gentiles are anybody who wasn't Jewish. And the Gentiles were not circumcised. They didn't have this sign of, they didn't have the outward sign, the reminder of God's promise to them. And the understanding of circumcision had been misunderstood, passed down through the ages with a little bit of twisting here and there, where the Jews were confused about, like, don't we have to be circumcised in order to be saved? Isn't it the basis of how we're saved? When in fact, no, it never was. It was always a sign of being saved, not the basis by which they're saved. But things had gotten confused down the centuries. And so the, the Jewish believers in Jesus, who were in fact circumcised, were very confused about whether they not needed to have the, the Gentile believers become circumcised in order to be saved. Like, yes, you believe in Jesus dying on the cross, but do you also need to be circumcised? So in about 48 or 49 AD, so about 11 to 12, 13 years before the Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae, um, in 48 or 49 AD, they had what is called the Jerusalem Council. We can read about it in Acts 15, where a bunch of the apostles got together, and Paul and Barnabas were there, and the disciples, and they had to think about what do we do with circumcision? What do we tell all the Gentile believers to do about whether or not they should be circumcised? And how should we counsel them? And at the Jerusalem Council, they came to the conclusion, and I love it, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to them. <laughs> I love the way it's phrased in Acts 15, uh, that new believers, Gentile believers, do not need to be circumcised because that was only a sign of the promise. It was not the basis of the promise. And Paul continues to write about that in many of his letters. And so we're going to jump to read a little bit in Galatians, and we're going to read a little bit in Romans, where he helps the people understand what circumcision always was. So it's not like circumcision changed. He helps them remember what it always was, what it meant even back in the times of Abraham. What did circumcision mean, and what did it not mean, and how can we understand that now that we have Jesus dying on the cross, he is the way that we're saved what do we do with circumcision? So we are going to jump to, we're going to start by jumping to Galatians. In the book of Galatians, uh, Paul was writing to a church in Galatia, actually many churches. It was a circular letter that was supposed to make its rounds to different places in what is now Turkey. 
clearly they they were really struggling because he talks to them about how at first you believed so excitedly so these were churches that paul had founded or started on his first missionary journey and cities like lystra and derby you might some of those might be familiar to you and they had they had started with such zeal and now he is like what has happened like where has your zeal gone uh and the what was happening was there were probably jewish believers who believed in jesus but were confused didn't have clarity and they were trying to tell the new believers the gentiles that they needed to be circumcised and paul is very upset as he writes the letter to galatia and is helping them understand that you you are free from the law you do not have to obey the law and in fact goes so far as to say you cannot try to live by the law any longer do not do that so i'm going to read from galatians chapter 5 and you're going to hear what he says about this starting at verse 1 i'm going to read through verse 4. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by a, a yoke of slavery again. Mark my words, exclamation point. I love when scripture uses exclamation points. It's not very common and we know it's really important. So he says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. I love that he says, mark my words. Do not let yourself be circumcised. So he's speaking to the Gentiles specifically saying, circumcision was a sign just for abraham's descendants as a reminder of the promise it is not the means by which you are saved don't fall into that trap because if you do you are going to fall under the obligation to fulfill the entire law but jesus has fulfilled the law jesus fulfilled the law for us it is by grace that we are saved don't let yourself fall away from grace. He writes about this more in his letter to the Romans, where the same thing is happening. People are just getting confused and they need clarity. So first of all, I'm going to just share with you a couple verses from Romans chapter 2. And he says in verses 28 and 29, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is, in, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So did you catch that? He's talking about how uh, whether or not you're Jewish is inward. Uh, it's, it's inside of you. You can't see it from the outside necessarily. And so he says the same thing with circumcision. Circumcision is not just an outward sign. In, in fact, it is what circumcision really is, is circumcision of the heart by the spirit. So he's going to talk about how our hearts are circumcised through Christ. And we're going to get more of that when we get back into the Colossians text, that Christ has circumcised our hearts by the spirit by cutting away the sin nature 
that we were born under because of the fall. I want to jump now to Romans chapter 4 and just read one more section about circumcision. In verses 9 through 12, Paul writes this, Is this blessedness only for, them, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credit to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. <laughs> and he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, that would include us as Gentiles, Abraham is the father of all who believe in Jesus and yet haven't been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, the Jews, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So what Paul is saying here is, look, righteousness was credited to Abraham because of his faith before he was ever even circumcised. Circumcision had nothing to do with the fact that God called Abraham righteous. Abraham was called righteous because he had faith in the one true God. That is where our righteousness comes from. It is not through following the law. Righteousness comes through Jesus, not through the law. So Paul is saying, don't let yourself fall into this trap of thinking that you have to obey the entire law and fulfill the law. Jesus already did that. Jesus fulfilled the law. And he says, so now I'm going back to Colossians chapter 2, because this will help us understand verse 11, Colossians 2 verse 11. He says, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure, Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. So Jesus, through his death on the cross, he cut away our sinful nature. That word that is translated as either put off or cut off in Greek is epikdesai, and it means the total breaking away from, the total breaking away from. So our sinful nature is totally broken away from us. One thing I like to do if I'm teaching this in person, if I'm going through the book of Colossians at a retreat or a teaching session in person, I like to read a little anecdote here from C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he includes an anecdote that happens to Eustace that I think is one of the most beautiful and clearly written stories that help us understand what it means to have our hearts circumcised by Christ, to have our sin nature cut off by Christ. And I don't know if this will be weird via podcast for me to read a little bit out loud from a book, uh, but I guess it's kind of like <laughs> reading to audiobooks. So it's just a little, it's just a little like two pages that I'm going to share with you. So what has happened is Eustace, who is one of the characters in in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and he becomes a main character throughout the Narnia series. Oh, I don't know if I said that. This is one of the this is the third book in the in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And Eustace is kind of a petty, selfish brat. Because of his selfishness, he 
has kind of a punishment. He becomes a dragon for a short time. He lives with the other Pevensey children, and during their adventure, for just a short time, they're stranded on this island, and for, we don't really get a clear image of how many days pass where Eustace is a dragon, but he becomes a dragon for several days, it seems. And he then one day wakes up and he's learned his lesson that he has been selfish and bratty and has kind of had a dragon spirit, which is why he was put into a dragon's body for a period of days. And then he wakes up one morning and discovers that he is a boy again. And one of the, one of the Pevensey children, Edmund comes to him and is talking to him about how did you get transformed back into a boy and Eustace is telling him, telling Edmund how it happened. And he doesn't really know, like it felt like a dream, but he knows it really did happen because he woke up as a human again and not a dragon. And so he's recalling back and telling him about how the lion, the great lion, Aslan, called to him through the moonlight and beckoned him to follow him. And so he was following Aslan, who is the Christ figure in Narnia. And he led them to the top of a mountain. He says, There was always this moonlight over and around the lion where we went. So at last we came to the top of a mountain that I had never seen before. And on top of this mountain there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom. But it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me that I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he actually said any words or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I didn't have on any clothes, when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things, and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, I thought, that's what he means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness or if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so then I started to go down into the bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and I saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just like they had been before. Oh, that's all right, I said. It just means that I have another smaller suit underneath the first one, so I'll have to get out of this one, too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped, and I left it lying beside the other one, and I went down into the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again, and I thought to myself, oh dear, how many skins do I have to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for a third time, and I got off a third skin, just like the other two, and I stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if he actually spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and I let him do it. 
The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever hurt, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like a bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming off. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought that I had done myself the other three times, only that hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker, darker, and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. And then he caught a hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone out of my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you? With his paws? Well, I don't remember that bit, but he did somehow or another in new clothes. That is exactly what it means that Jesus has circumcised our hearts. He has cut away the sin nature and he has dressed us in new clothes, in his righteousness. We cannot cut away our sin nature by ourselves. That's why Jesus died on the cross. No amount of obeying the law perfectly or being good enough is ever going to cut away that sin nature. Jesus had to cut away the sin nature. A total breaking away from the sin nature. That is the circumcision of the hearts. And Paul is telling the people in, in Colossae, you had this done to you when you came to Christ. When you believed in Christ, he circumcised your heart. He cut away your sin nature. You don't have to do it yourself. He already did it. And then he goes on in verse 12 and he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. All right. So in the New Living Translation, it says it a little more clearly in verse 12, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized and with him, you were raised to new life. Because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Let us jump to Romans again and get a little more description of what it means that we have been buried with Christ in baptism. So in Romans chapter 6, Paul is going to write about this a little bit longer. And we're just going to read seven verses that is going to give us more information about what that means. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, he writes, What shall we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace can increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it in any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Okay, so there he talks about how we died with Christ in baptism, and we are raised with him into new life. And when we died with him through baptism, that is when the circumcision of our heart occurred, when Christ cut away the sin nature. Because anyone who has died with Christ has been set free from sin. It says that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That sin nature was crucified on the cross with Christ. So then, why do you and I still struggle with sin? In fact, in Romans, this is in chapter 6 I was just reading about, and the very next chapter, chapter 7, Paul is going to share his own struggle with sin. We're not going to read that. But he's going to share very personally about how he himself still battles with sin. And that is the difference between sin nature and sin habits. So our sin nature was crucified with Christ on the cross. It was cut away through the circumcision with Christ. We have been set free from our sin nature and it no longer has a hold on us. We are left with sin habits, nasty habits that we daily need to work on and sanctification is a lifelong process of growing in purity as we learn to put to death the sin habits our sin nature is already put to death sanctification is a lifelong process of learning through the power of the holy spirit to put to death our sin habits to break any attachments we have with sin habits. That is what sanctification is. It's growing in holiness and purity as we become like Jesus. Let's go on to verse 13. In verse 13, Paul writes, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us he has taken it away nailing it to the cross all right so <clears throat> in the new living translation it says he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross the charges against us were from the written code the written law we do not f perfectly fulfill the law of god and so we have a charge against us. God took that away. The charges against us, he took it away and he nailed it on Jesus' cross. When criminals were crucified, they would write the crime for which they were being crucified. They would write it on a, on a wooden plaque and nail it to the cross. Jesus had no crimes. And so his plaque said, King of the Jews. And it said it in three different languages when he was crucified on the cross. That was because he had no he had no crime that he had committed for them to write on the plaque. So instead, it simply said, King of the Jews. 
What this is saying is that God has nailed our charges to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sin, our crime, our charges against us have been nailed to the cross through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find out in 1 Peter 2.24 that our sin was actually nailed to the cross in the body of Jesus, that he had all of the sin in his own flesh. So our sin was nailed to the cross by being in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He forgave all our sin and he, he paid the penalty for us and then canceled the charge against us. It says he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And in verse 15, this is a very powerful statement saying that through de doing so, he disarmed the powers and authorities. Those would be the spiritual forces of evil working against us. He disarmed them. He broke the power of sin and death. Sin and death have no power over Jesus. And because Jesus died on the cross and rose again, sin and death also have no power over us. So the spiritual forces of evil in this world are present and they're real but they do not have power over us because of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ he broke the power disarmed the powers of the the spiritual forces of evil and authorities and he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross which is really interesting because one of the points of crucifixion was public humiliation. That's why they were crucified on a hill and they were naked and it was close to the roads. So there were passersby who would see them and shame them. It was a public humiliation. And what this is saying is that when Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities of the spiritual realm, the, the spiritual forces of evil, he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them through the cross, by defeating them. So, dear friend, I want you to know, very, very important that your enemy, the enemy of your soul, is a defeated and disarmed foe. He is a defeated and disarmed foe and he knows that he is defeated he knows his time is short when Jesus returns and has his final victory over Satan Satan will be judged and cast out forever forever and he knows it he's aware of it and that is why he is so desperate to send as many lies and twist as many things of the truth and bring hearts away from the Lord Jesus Christ as much as he can. And that is why Paul writes, pay attention. Do not let yourself be taken captive by these spiritual forces of evil. They are disarmed. They are defeated foes. Jesus has conquered over them. Don't let them take you captive. We are going to wrap up chapter 2 by looking at the warnings that Paul gives. As he does this, he sort of like blends together a couple of the main philosophies that are working against the gospel in Colossae. And they kind of flow together as he writes this. So 
one of the main things that they are up against is legalism by the Jews, being told that they must adhere to the law, which we've already talked about, the circumcision. And then he's going to go on in this section and talk about obeying all the rules of the Sabbaths and what to eat and what to touch and all of the rules of the Old Testament law that Jesus has fulfilled all of that. So new Gentiles do not need, or new Gentile believers do not need to adhere to the Old Testament law. And so he is going to help them understand that. And then he's going to kind of also go into a little bit of more of the Gnosticism and the asceticism, the being harsh to the body and trying to to deny the body and be holy and pure enough simply by denying the body good gifts that God has given to us. He's going to just warn them of many of the things coming at them and just remind them that they have been saved in Jesus and they don't need to adhere to any of the, these outside ideas coming towards them. So we're going to go through this a little more quickly, uh, but I want us to think about what are the lies coming at us? A lot of the things he's going to mention aren't really things that we face today, but there are certainly things that we face today that are coming at us and that we think, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to be like this, uh, I need to satisfy God in this way. And uh, we just want to think about what is this for us? So verse 16, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So those are some of the things in the Old Testament law. And he's like, don't don't let people judge you based on whether or not you adhere to all this. In verse 17, he says something very important. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. These were just a shadow um, in my commentary there's a lovely sentence here that says, what the Old Testament foreshadowed, Christ fulfilled. So these were a shadow. They were foreshadowing Jesus, but Christ fulfilled it all. So don't get wrapped up in it. Verse 18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. So that would be some of the more asceticism and the Gnosticism, worshiping angels, uh, false humility, just trying to be like kind of all high and mighty. And it's a false humility, though. There's not a real humility there. It's like bragging about how pure and holy you are. So that's a false humility. He's like, don't let them disqualify you. Now, this is really important because we learn in chapter 1, verse 12, we learned that we ought to give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. God the Father qualified us through Jesus to live in the inheritance of the saints in the light forever and ever. We are qualified. You just say that to yourself right now. I am qualified because God qualified me through Christ Jesus. So don't let anybody else tell you that you're disqualified, tell you that you're not good enough for salvation or good enough for eternal life or good enough for God to love you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Such a person who is trying to disqualify others goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head. Okay, we already learned who is the head, who is the head of the body of the church. That's Jesus. They have lost connection with Jesus, from whom the whole body, the body of Christ, 
supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So anybody who is all puffed up with all these ideas, like you have to do this, you have to do this, be like this, you're not holy enough yet, you have to keep getting holier, and then God will accept you. Anybody who is trying to tell you those lies has lost connection with the head. The head is Jesus. They've lost connection with him though. And so don't listen to them. They cannot disqualify you because God qualified you already. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, okay, that would be the the evil forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Okay, this would be considering two things. One, the Jewish legalism about uh, don't touch anything that will defile you, but also Gnosticism, where you're supposed to completely deny the body. So like, do not taste things, that would be like denying the body anything good, like the, the lies that the body is evil. The body certainly isn't evil. God created it good and beautiful. So this would, would point both to Jewish legalism and also Gnosticism. I want to read that verse out of the New Living Translation. Uh, it just says it really clearly. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So then, why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. So they're no good. They're mere human teachings. They're no good. Don't adhere to those rules. You died with Christ. You have overcome the things of this world. Verse 23. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. What Paul is saying there is that these rules, they appear to help you be holy. They appear to help you grow in sanctification, to become more like Jesus, because you're following a whole bunch of rules, and you're treating your body harshly, you're denying yourself things that are actually good and fine and for your enjoyment. But following rules is not actually sanctification. It says they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In the New Living Translation, it says, but these rules provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. That can only be done through the Holy Spirit. Following rules cannot sanctify your heart. Following rules does not purify you from the inside out. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And the Holy Spirit doesn't just tell us to obey rules. The Holy Spirit purifies us so that the evil desires and the evil habits, the sin habits that are so pesky, so that they are less desirous to us. We don't want them anymore. Uh, We don't crave those sin habits anymore. We don't want to gossip. We don't want to lie. We don't want to cheat. We don't want to overspend. Uh, We just, we want to live closely and walk closely with Jesus because of an overflow of love for him rather than a fear of following the rules. 
You have been qualified by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sin nature has been circumcised by Christ when he died on the cross. You died with Christ through baptism and have been raised with him to new life. The powers of sin, death, and the devil have no hold over you because Jesus conquered over them. Let me say that again. The powers of sin, death, and the devil have no hold over you because Jesus powered and conquered over them. He broke the power of sin, death, and the devil. So we don't have to live in fear anymore. We don't have to live in fear. We are free in Christ and we are complete in Christ. Colossians chapter 3 for our next episode is going to get into the so then because you are free in Christ how then shall we live what does that look like on a day-to-day living actual practical basis I look forward to talking to you about Colossians chapter 3 have an awesome day bye